9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York. We're here today to discuss um, extraordinary unfolding tragedy um, taking place in India uh, with regard to its battle with the COVID crisis. This has come out of several of our preceding uh, conversations, and we are joined today uh, by two of our regulars, um, Dr. Kavita Patel, formerly of the Obama White House, currently of the Brookings administration and a practicing physician. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. And uh, uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, also uh, uh, widely re- renowned as an expert on India. How are you today, Ed? Great. I'm not an expert on India, but I am fascinated by what's going on there. Well, you've you've written a book, you know, in Washington that counts for being an expert. <laughs> um, and uh, we're especially glad to be joined by Rana Ayub, who is a global opinions writer for the Washington Post, very well known Indian journalist, one of the most courageous voices out there uh, in uh, telling the truth about what's going on in India. Uh, she is joining us right now from Bombay. Hi, Rana. Thanks for joining us. Hi, David. Thanks for the very kind introduction. Great to be joining all of you. So I'll, I, I just want to provide a kind of an overview question, and then uh, uh, Ed and Kavita have some questions. And uh, I know your time is limited, so after about 20 minutes, uh, uh, we'll say goodbye to you. And then those in uh, uh, our member group who can pose questions uh, we'll start taking your questions for Ed and Kavita at that time and follow up to this. So if you've got a question um, for that segment, go down to the Q&A part of your Zoom window and uh, type in the question and we'll get to them uh, then. Um, I, Rana, I, I, I think in the United States and we have listeners around the world outside of India as well, there's a sense of the scale of what's going on there, but it's a bit misleading. Uh, it looks like the government of India um, uh, uh, death tolls, which have been staggering, currently around 4,000 a day, are, are, are a fraction of the total. The, the total death toll, which is in the 250,000 range, uh, seems to be perhaps uh, two to three times smaller than what it really is. Currently, the the estimate based on excess mortality is more around 650,000 and, and growing. And it may be that 10 times as many people as reported have COVID in India, uh, where it is taking a particular toll on the rural population, although it has stressed the system to, to, the, to the max everywhere. Um, that's That's kind of you know, that's what we get from the headlines. Can you give us your sense of the, 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 the scope and, and, and the human scale of this tragedy? Well, David, I've been reporting from India the last 15 years, and I can say this as a journalist that I have witnessed uh, carnage I've reported on, you know, 
communal polarization, sectarian violence, terrorism, but nothing, uh, I've never witnessed anything like this, 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 hu this human tragedy, this humanitarian crisis, this, as my writer friend said the other day, it's a Holocaust in our, in, you know, in, in, that we are living right now in India. It's a nightmare to be a journalist right now. Uh, we wake up to deaths. We wake up to deaths of our immediate family members. I lost my uncle and a cousin in a span of three days. Um, my best friend right now, who is once very close to me, who wished me on my birthday a week ago, is on ventilator, and I'm, no, I'm not sure if he's going to survive. Um, that's, this, that's the story of almost every Indian. So when I wrote in the Time cover story about two weeks ago, that the numbers could be at least 10 times higher than what the official numbers are coming out. There was so much outrage from the Indian government saying, you know, these are concocted figures. And they went about deleting tweets that spoke about uh, the range and the scale of the devastation. But to give you an example, I have been getting videos from a lot of journalists who I'm working with in rural India, where I myself will be traveling in the next three, four days because the scale of devastation is much higher there. Um, this this gentleman from the Press Trust of India, um, he's been sending me videos every day from one small town and from one small area. And there are at least 450 cremations in one small town uh, in Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populated state in India. One can only imagine this, the number of uh, deaths that are taking place on a daily basis. Yesterday, uh, an extremely disturbing video uh, did the rounds from Bihar, again, a North Indian state where COVID mortalities, you know, those who died of COVID, their bodies were thrown in the river and stray dogs were carrying the bodies to the surface and eating them. I mean, that's the scale of, I mean, one can't even look at these images. In Gujarat, the newspapers, um, you know, multiple newspapers, local newspapers, they have dedicated multiple of multiple uh, pages to just obituaries. Just today, there's a report by an ed editor of a Gujarati newspaper that he saw bodies lining up and he saw sent an investigator journalist to report and found out that these are the deaths which are not accounted for under COVID. So that's the scale of devastation we are looking at. Officially, as we stand today, we are looking at 4,000 deaths in a day. That's the official number, close to 3,900. But given what we are hearing as a journalist, as who's, who's had a nose on the ground, who's been speaking to multiple sources, including health officials, I would not be exaggerating if the figure is 10 times, David. Okay, well, that's... Um, um, uh, hard, 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 almost to comprehend. Uh, by the way, those of you who who, who want to try to should go and read some of Rana's writings. Uh, she did a column uh, in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago about the death of her uncle and her cousin that I found particularly uh, heart wrenching. Uh, let me go for the first question to Kavita. Yeah, as someone whose family is from Gujarat, I, I commiserate with having so many friends and family just die healthy young people all the way to people with chronic conditions. I'm going to ask you just because of uh, both, I think there's been very clear kind of levels of, of silencing of the reporting coming out of India and also kind of threats made to journalists of all types, including social media figures, you know, even members of, of uh, the Bollywood kind of culture. 
And frankly, I can't help but think that that could have been our country in the United States if, uh, if Donald Trump had won another term, because we now know that he had, you know, that there had been investigations and, and uh, um, phone numbers and, and all sorts of privacy issues that you're well aware of. So my question is, will we ever understand kind of the full scope of this? And, and if so, how? And, and as a bias, I will tell you, I've been trying to press on the Biden administration to be very clear that any anything that we leverage and send or any member of the G20 that sends anything that we must have accountability and transparency in return that you know that there's just got to be that level of transparency but frankly I don't even know if the Modi government would do that so do you mind just talking as a journalist and as a human in India kind of your take on on what it what what is happening with suppression of a voice and what will likely happen, if anything, to expose it? Thanks, Kavita, and condolences for your losses in Gujarat. I mean, I think we're all in collective mourning right now in this country, especially in the diaspora, most of us who have an Indian background. Um, so there are multiple reports during the rounds as we talk, uh, one which was done by Scroll, which is a leading Indian independent website, which first raised the stink about, you know, we have 300 crores worth of, I mean, just billions of rupees worth of international aid coming in. Most of that aid has come also as a result, as a consequence of the international headlines that this devastation has made. It's on the front page of Time, it is on the front page of New York Times, Washington Post. So yes, the international reportage of this has been extremely crucial. But there is still no accountability as to where has the aid gone because states are still raising SOS every day that we are running out of oxygen, that we don't have oxygen concentrators, and we don't have any clear answers. The prime minister of this country who last year in the lockdown, when he was announcing the lockdown, very famously asked the middle class to bang plates and light theirs. But this year, he's just silent. There is absolutely no communication with him. There is no transparency from any of the government organizations. And why is it that despite receiving such uh, aid in such huge amount, why are people still in desperation? The government um, also seems to have announced measures, but it doesn't seem to be reflecting on the ground. As far as the scale of tragedy is concerned, I really wish, Kavita, you know, because I wish due diligence was done by the Indian media if we ever had one. Uh, I remember when three, four days ago, when I raised this, uh, when I spoke about this to Christiana Manpur on CNN, and I said, journalism in India is on ventilator. I was hauled over the coals in India for saying that for the simple reason that here are Indians mocking and laughing at Trump, but what is happening in our home country? At least, at least America can boast of a robust press, robust institutions, we do not have a judiciary. We do not have a media with a spine. And our Supreme Court does not place enough importance on hospitals pleading before the Supreme Court to, in, to ask the government to help them with oxygen. And the Supreme Court delays that by a week. I mean, this is a tragedy. This is a crisis. And the Supreme Court is still trying to save the government. As far as our media is concerned, there is not a single publication yet that has placed Narendra Modi on the cover. I'm talking about a mainstream media that said, where is the accountability? Where is Narendra Modi? Why had he given sanction for religious festivals, uh, which, which also meant the Kumbh Mela, where millions of Hindu devotees were, were taking the holy dip while SOS messages were passing on social media for desperate need of oxygen? Why was the prime minister himself holding massive election rallies 
and sharing a live feed of that video on Twitter and calling it the Festival of Democracy. So tough questions should have been asked of Narendra Modi. Why was there no permission given for vaccines? Why were we relying on just one single vaccine? Why is it that it took us as late as April to give emergency approval for Sputnik and, and consider other vaccines? Why was so much of spectacle being made of the Serum Institute sending vaccines all over the world and making it all about Narendra Modi being this super individual who's helping the world while his own people are dying in our backyard. So once this is all over, and frankly, I don't know when will this over this be over because scientists are already warning of a possible crushing third wave, which has already taken most of our youth this time around. The people who are dying are the age group between 30 and 50 mostly because we did not consider them for vaccination. So, and we still have, op we have opened up for vaccination for everyone above the age of 18, but there are no slots. As journalists, we did not find a single slot for getting ourselves vaccinated. So once this is over, whenever this is over, I don't know if we will ever get the scale of the devastation or the truth unless somebody really digs in deep and some investigative journalism is done in India. It is being done by a lot of journalists. I must say a lot of journalists are putting their necks in the line of fire right now as we are talking. I'm still a very, very privileged journalist sitting in Bombay, but there are a lot of journalists who are reporting on the scale of the tragedy. But the gatekeepers who are our publishers and editors, will they allow the truth to come out? Um, I don't think we would know that. So it is important for international attention, like when you spoke about intervention, it's important for international interventions to keep a check on what's happening in India for accountability. Thank you, Ed. Um, thanks, David. Um, Rana, I've, I've long admired your, um, your courage and tenacity in covering um, many aspects of Modi's India and the communalism you know, side to it in particular. Um, what you say about um, the role of journalism and of other people who are bringing, uh, trying to bring, shed some light on this situation and to bring some accountability to, to the BJP government is, is clearly very important. But just to follow up on Kavita's question, sure. um, the, I, I see you on Twitter. You know, I get, I get my own small glimpses of this. If, I, if I, I ever tweet about anything critical about Modi, I see the sort of scale of vituperation. And it's nothing because compared to what somebody like you gets, um, partly because you're female, partly because you're Muslim but it is really visceral, really nasty stuff. And it's yes. on quite a scale. Um, so my question is, um, you know, we have on the formal side, we do have censorship going on we, and we have intimidation of newspapers going on um, and of the gatekeepers, as you put it. Um, but we also on the informal side have an enormous sort of scale of intimidation going on, all of which presumably is to downplay the scale of this crisis. Um, and to make India look less bad than it is. Is that correct? Or is there a sort of- Absolutely. You're spot on. You are spot on here, Edward, because um, I remember, I think I see a lot of liberal journalists suddenly talking about democracy in peril in India, because this time around, this has attacked everyone equally. All this while, but it was attacking the marginalized, the lower caste, the liberals were still trying to be, you know, to have this false equivalence that Modi is not that bad. Let's give him a second chance. Let's look at this. Let's, let's give him the benefit of doubt. But this time, because of the scale of tragedy, this is not looking as at class or caste. 
this is a great this is impacting everybody they are the rich billionaires who are also who have also been unable to save their own family members last year though when you saw the lockdown it was the migrant workers who were walking bare feet uh from from the cities to the villages and they were the ones who were suffering the scale of devastation so this year you suddenly see a lot of people especially journalists um uh, in regional journalists especially in gujarat and uh, and madhya pradesh they're talking about this uh without any censors so they are putting out stories gujarati newspapers like sandesh which have been complicit in enabling modi's rise to power from the chief minister to the prime minister who have in a way enabled his own bigotry are suddenly finding themselves critical of modi because unfortunately this pandemic is 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 killing a lot of gujaratis who who were also modi supporters so this time i think because it has impacted them so much having said that the gatekeepers still are doing their job and what are they doing you see the times network which is one of the biggest networks in india played an hour long episode on times now wherein they posted the headlines of all leading publications international publications time new york times washington post le mo telegraph creating this image that the international media has been paid to uh, to kind of malign modi's image internationally because he was emerging as this leader who was leading india to this great as a great economic superpower so that's what the mainstream media which is consumed by a majority of the indian population does uh, you see the hindi news channels like aaj tak who last year just last year when the pandemic took place called the called covid virus as a muslim virus because a small congregation of muslims uh, were did an event in new delhi but when we had just 500 cases and india today had a graphic image of the virus with a muslim skull cap and that was circulated all over india and everyone there were news reports by india's leading channel aaj tak in z news that muslims were spitting at nurses and muslims were muslims were beating doctors and they're spitting at people and that news in any other country in any other democracy would not find a platform it was this is dog whistle this is not even dog whistle this is a clear call for of bigotry this is a clear call of attacking muslims and this was being done at the behest of the government to in a way hide its own inefficiency to cover it up with communalization when nothing else works in modi's india communal polarization always works so even now if you see the election results in west bengal right after the election results happened mr modi's government leaders have now made it a anti muslim anti a hindu muslim thing where they're saying their fake news is emerging every day that in west bengal when modi lost power hindus are being beaten to death that hindus are being attacked so there is this kind of they're trying to look for this hindu muslim angle which i think unfortunately this time will fall flat because you can't keep you can't keep selling majoritarianism in a country where there are no oxygen cylinders when people are gasping for breath you cannot sell them the grand ram temple which you have built last year in the midst of the lockdown you place the foundation stone of the grand ram temple which was built over a demolished mosque to establish yourself as this hindu leader of this of this victimized hindu majority this won't work out this time because people are dying and unfortunately because hindus are in a majority they are a lot of hindus who are dying so you can't you there's no face saver unfortunately this is a leader who believes in spectacle this is a leader who believes in great spins he knows how to spin a story and that's where i think the media comes into picture he uses the media efficiently to spin his own 
uh, you know, inefficiencies in making it about other people. Or right now, the government is saying it's all about people. The middle class did this, or you know, blaming it on a community. But I, I hope, I hope that better sense prevails on the Indian media. The, the our journalists are doing a stellar job. None, none of them have any. Most of the reporters that I speak to, so many of them from Uttar Pradesh. They're, they're even scared of allowing me to share their names in my reports. And, I, and I'm, it's quite embarrassing that I do not quote the people, the journalists who I'm talking to. And when I ask them, why would they not allow me to quote them? And their answer is, you will quote us. And then Yogi Adityanath, who's the chief minister, will go after us. There will be cases of sedition slapped after us. There are two journalists in jail who reported on the gang rape of a Dalit girl last year. That man is still in jail and he's suffering from COVID-19. So that's if that is what journalists suffer as a consequence of reporting the truth and the gatekeepers and the editors do not have their back, you don't expect much from them. I guess when you have, when you're living in a country that where your editors don't have a spine, I mean, it's unfortunate if I have to give my example. I don't write for many Indian publications because I don't get the space there. I have to write for a Washington Post or a New York Times. Why is that? Because my people are scared that they don't want a byline with me in their publications. That speaks volumes. Wow. Thank you very much. We really, really appreciate your taking this much time uh, to spend with us. And uh, I hope we can invite you back in the future to talk more about this and, and where it goes. Uh, your insights are extremely valuable. And we also, of course, uh, wish you the best to you and, your, and, and those you know to you know stay healthy uh, through this period. So uh, thank you, Rana, very, very much thank for so joining much. us. So and uh, so we, much, will, we will we will circle back to you in the future to join us again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ed and Kavita, we, we'll have a couple of questions from the, uh, the audience. But uh, uh, for, first of all, let, let me just go to you sequentially and ask your reactions. Sadly, nothing she said surprised me, yet it still shocked me because it's just the world touts India as the kind of you know, literally the world's largest democracy, surely because of its size, but certainly not because of its actions. And and we didn't get into any granularity of what's kind of playing out clinically on the ground, but that's what I have a much stronger tie to. And there are incredible, incredible kind of reports on the ground of just, you know, third party black market gouging from all sides with and that's something very common in India. I can, I, when I many times have gone to India, you can make things go away with the right amount of money, but it's literally a lack. It's it's the one function that government theoretically should have to try to kind of provide an even hand and some level of lawmaking in these chaotic situations. And there's none for the reports out of Bangalore, Delhi. I mean, nobody, not one person has been able to overcome, you know, if you have the right amount of money, we can get you a hospital bed, we can get you an ICU bed, we can get you oxygen. And these are hospitals telling people this, this isn't, uh, you know, just dark shadowed figures in the street. And so I do fear India is going to go through not just a third wave, but a fourth wave because vaccinating, let's say half, let's say half of their population gets infected, but vaccinating <clears throat> the other remainder is no easy task. And especially since they exported 66 million vaccines to other countries without any security valve for themselves. And by the way, the vaccines they're making, I hate to say this, are the ones that are questionable in their efficacy 
and most likely to not withstand the very, the very variants that are coming kind of in India right now. Um, and I want to ask your reaction, but I want to ask it in the context. Um, uh, obviously, Brana paints a very uh, bleak uh, picture, and so do all the stories coming out of out of out of India. There are perhaps twenty million people now in India with this uh, uh, disease. Perhaps they're dying at the rate of ten thousand a day or fifteen thousand a day. Uh, perhaps they will soon pass a million. But um, you know, this is spreading into uh, rural India. Uh, they ran out of oxygen in the big cities that in the, in the, in the smaller towns and cities in, in India, there, there are few doctors. Um, there are stories of people um, promoting the idea that dung is an antidote. Cow dung is an antidote to, to COVID. Uh, and so it sounds to me like what you have here is the making of a social economic breakdown and that, in turn, could lead to a political breakdown. Is that your sense? Uh, or, you know, has India absorbed so much punishment over the years, this, this could simply be another cycle of pain? You should never underestimate the latter, that your last point, that, I mean, India, India's got, got a capacity for, for an endurance that we can't really imagine um, living in more comfortable more developed countries. Um, but, you know, what Kavita was saying, uh, I think, is very important about the sort of clinical reality on the ground for all walks of life, rich and poor, rural and urban, lacking access to um, basic medical um, assistance for COVID, it, it is to ask why. And the question, I think, is a really, a really important one. And it's not just because India is traditionally underspent on its sort of basic health infrastructure, which it has. Mm -hmm. It is scandalously low, even by lower income um, country standards. But also more particularly, why in this pandemic with this amount of forewarning, um, the Modi government, which prides itself on being a not Congress government, in other words, on being supposedly efficient and executed, um, that, um, that Modi nevertheless has been caught asleep at the wheel. And I think, you know, you have to look at the kind of leader he is. Um, he is a guru. Uh, I mean, the longer his beard gets, the more worried I get, because that is a measure of the narcissism of how he sees himself as a guru leader. And gurus tend to receive praise. They tend to receive good news. Um, uh, Rana mentioned the, the temple being built in Ayodhya, um, uh, which is symbolically hugely important to the Hindu nationalist project. But in the last year, there's also been this massive statue built of Modi. It's like a world-beating uh, statue, I forget its height, but it's enormous. In, during the pandemic, um, the largest sports stadium in the world, in Ahmedabad, which is Modi's hometown, um, is being opened and it's called the Narendra Modi st Stadium. There is a cult of personality here um, that I associate with neo-fascism um, and therefore of communication breakdown. Um, you start to believe your own propaganda. You drink your own bathwater. And so I think Modi believes in the cult of himself and the people around him reflect the cult of himself. And part of this is just the sheer hubris of not understanding um, 
the scientific warnings and not hearing the scientific warnings. And that's why India is so ill-equipped. Will it lead to a breakdown? Um, look, I very much hope it leads to a repudiation of Modi and the BJP, but there is no really serious um, national alternative. The Congress party remains a dynastic, a pretty hopeless dynastic party um, under Rahul Gandhi. And at the moment it is not showing any signs of being electorally popular. The parallels, David, between, I, I, I often speak to people as the United States feels because we're getting more vaccinated and you know things are becoming less restrictive or so we hope <laughs> that people kind of often suggest like, well, what happens in India is, is really not applicable to us because we're going to be vaccinated in the US, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a firm reminder that there is no reason that India of 2021 is not the you know Wuhan or China of 2020 basically because a virus that can have a grab a hold of a population of that size. And by the way, I think the Africas will likely follow. And we've talked, we talk about poor infrastructure in India. I mean, there are entire countries in Africa that have, you know, one ventilator per, per million. It's, it's just an insane, insane kind of proposition to think what would happen if this got to other countries of scale. And so I, I, I remind people, we're not going to be out of this until we kind of deal with it, which is why I think you're seeing appropriate pressure. People have said that Biden, you know, supporting patent waivers is is just cosmetic and doesn't it won't really do anything in and of itself. It won't do anything, but it sends a pretty strong signal that, you know, we acknowledge that we need to vaccinate the whole world and we need to make that as um, as efficient and as cheap as possible because even the Indian manufacturers are reporting kind of getting price gouged and, and transfer of materials and raw goods, which are in great global demand. They, they have, there's no price controls for the pieces to make the vaccine. You can free up the patents and put the directions on, on online, but if you can't get the parts, you can't put it together. And that's exactly how it's playing out. Um, I, I, I welcome questions from folks in the audience. There's a question here, which sort of off off the thrust of this conversation, but it touches upon something that's come up before, and that is, um, you know, how one gets accountability for governments that are so grotesquely um, um, uh, out of touch or, or politically motivated that they, you know, produce giant tragedies um, and, 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 and deaths of hundreds of thousands. Um, and it's, you know, it's clear when you listen, particularly, you know, narcissistic Americans listen to story about a place like India, as bad as the situation is in the United States. And by the way, the excess uh, mortality study that just came out suggested that there were probably not 650,000 U.S. deaths, but 950,000 U.S. deaths. Um, but the, the, the factor... By, by which the U.S. is off is something like 1.67 or 8 or something. The factor by which India, Brazil, Mexico is off is over 2. In the case of India and Brazil, it's close to 3. Um, and so you've got these giant disasters. The United States government, shofar, shows absolutely zero impulse to conduct a, a, a kind of commission on how we had this tragedy. 
I'm wondering, and I'll start with that and then go to Kavita. Maybe it's the wrong forum. Maybe it's the UN. It needs to look at all the countries. Look, compare countries side by side. See what worked in some countries, and 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 where other countries went terribly wrong. Uh, you know, I know there'd be a lot of pressure from those countries to suppress uh, the, those findings, but the the crimes are not just in the U.S. You know, and maybe maybe, maybe you know the. <laughs> The, the, you know, there's the, some, the World Health Organization needs to do an independent blue ribbon look at where, where these countries went wrong. Uh, I mean, it would be it would be great if the, the WHO were empowered to do that. Um, the problem is it's only as strong as consensus between its members, um, like any UN body. And, you know, the China, the, the China problem is, you know, is not going to go away. They have restricted WHO access. Um, WHO teams have been there, have been um, stonewalled on some of the more sensitive questions to do with the origins of this virus and the wet markets in Wuhan, etc. And, you know, until you have a, an international body that is autonomous from its members, which is very hard to imagine in today's world, I don't see an official body being a good vehicle to conduct such a study. I think this has to be done, you know, via networks, by scholars, um, by journalists and others, the kind of sort of informal networks um, that you saw helping sort of create the data that produced these vaccines last year, the sharing of, you know, um, DNA sequences and so, and so forth, um, that you saw between institutes and researchers. Um, so I, I don't know whether we're going to get a sort of Olympic table here, um, uh, but we can certainly learn um, through through those more informal networks. I know you've thought about this kind of issue of accountability, Kavita. What are your thoughts on what might work? Yeah. So the cynical part of me kind of wondered, you know, are there things that um, both Democratic and Republican colleagues don't want to come to light because all parties are kind of involved? I mean, certainly. We, we don't need to do any favors to the Trump administration by somehow making it seem like they weren't the master of this disaster and, and behind most of the failings with dealing with the pandemic. So that's the cynical part of me. And then I realized the political part of me, um, if you're Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi, and you know that the race to the midterms comes quickly and you've got vulnerable members who are riding just on that border right there, Joe Manchin, I'm looking at you, that taking on the president and the kind of Pandora's box it opens might do them more harm than good. So, so I, I find it abhorrent that we don't have some mechanism um, on the congressional side for executing what I would say is their constitutional kind of mandate to keep the executive branch in check and balance. But I think there's so many things that we've talked about on the podcast before that we have not kind of held Trump in check. And so I, I also think I wish the World Health Organization, I wish somebody, I wish the UN, David, had the kind of credibility to let this play out. But until then, I think we have to kind of play it out in the court of the public to whatever degree we can. And I, I'm worried that as we get closer to midterms and further away from this pandemic, the American public forgets. What I feel like we're still in the kind of, you know, we're on the finishing line, so to speak, mile 23 of 26.2. Once we get past the finish line, this is not a public that's going to remember. And for that reason, 
I do want to memorialize this incompetence and hold somebody accountable, but I'm not sure I'll get it. Okay, we've only got about two minutes uh, left. I'll ask one very difficult and impossible to answer in a minute question to Ed and then one to Kavita. Ed, you know, one of the things that that Brana's description uh, and, and, and comments of Kavita's sort of suggest is that we could hit the fall of this year and Broadway's opening and tourists are streaming back into New York and the U.S. economy is growing at 8% and Americans are popping champagne bottles, right? And bodies are floating in the Ganges River and dogs are dragging them out and eating them. And the same is happening in Africa. And that millions of people who have not been touched by this are touched in countries that can't address it. Um, that strikes me as not just optically uncomfortable for the United States, but a story that could lead to uh, unrest and one that would be very, very difficult for the Biden administration to manage because it would require so many resources to so many places. You know, it's one thing to say, we'll send some plane loads to India. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I noticed that just today, uh, uh, AMLO, the president of, 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 of Mexico, said, oh, when I was talking to Kamala Harris, she said they would send us a bunch of AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm -hmm. Not The US didn't report this, by the way. This is just him reporting it. It just strikes me that, you know, there's a, there's a second phase of the COVID crisis, which is a, a, a foreign policy nightmare for the United States. What do you think? Look, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, the... the dichotomy between where we think we're heading and where we hopefully are heading in most of the West um, this summer and the herd immunity we think we're getting and the next year, two, maybe three years for most of the developing world of third, fourth, fifth waves is going to get worse. And it of course endanger our own herd immunity too as some of these like this double mutant in India. I hear mostly anecdotal reports that uh, some of the vaccines, including Pfizer, have, have actually not been effective against it. That, that now, th this is not hard data, but there's sufficient number of anecdotal reports to be concerned there from credible people. Um, at the moment, the Biden administration's given, uh, pledged $4 billion for the COVAX facility um, to distribute vaccines, and Europe is $3 billion. This is about eight hours worth of spending um, um, uh, at home. They've pledged for the whole of 2021 in international vaccine um, support. Um, I think they've got to up that dramatically. The politics at home might be difficult, but it is not that hard to explain to most people, I think, or to a majority that, um, you know, a bit like Bush, I think, rather incorrectly said, if we don't fight them over there, we'll be fighting them at home. <laughs> well, if we don't defeat the virus globally, it will come back locally. It will come back at home. Um, and so I hope very much Biden will have the um, sort of wherewithal um, to be able to, um, you know, when he hits his July 4th, as I hope he will, target date of getting 70% of American adults vaccinated, that if the, if the decision then is to focus all his resources on getting from 70 to 85%, as opposed to, 
you know, looking at the five billion around the world who I think pose probably a, a far bigger danger in terms of the scale of that Petri dish to America's health, then I, I think that will be a key moment. I hope that moment will come sooner. This is a, there's nothing more important than defeating this global pandemic. And it's the most important foreign policy priority for Biden or should be. Uh, Kavita, as the last question, let me pick up on that question. Because, you know, Ed's point, this they borrowed from George W. Bush, is on a, the minds of a lot of people, and we had a question about it. You know, are these countries going to produce variants, mutants, other kinds of manifestations of this pandemic that could, you know, untrack U.S. or European recovery, even as they wreak further havoc in in the in the global south yeah very briefly the short answer is yes and by the way it could play out to be our own homegrown variants that could be one of those additional factors because we still only have about you know a third optimistically a half of our population that'll be fully vaccinated in the next several weeks so that continues to slow down which it has and we in the biden administration doesn't step in and do something incredibly bold i think that we could see mutations of concern, not just from other countries, but have that reverberate back around and what do pandemics and what do these types of viruses do? There is a seasonality to them, just like the flu. So could we have kind of wave number two? Could we vaccinate our way out of wave number two? Possibly, but not without having some of this chaos again. And and so just shortly, I, I will say that uh, having talked to very competent people inside the Biden administration in charge of this, I have said, you know, we have to do this all over again for booster shots. And if you think this lift was heavy, we're going to have to get much tougher and clearer to Americans about the need for this. And then to Ed's point, kind of not just the greatest foreign policy challenge because of this universality of the virus in its own way, it's the largest domestic challenge. Our economy got taken down because we refused to acknowledge and refused to deal with anything with this virus in the last administration. And Biden had to pick up what he got left over with, which was this patchwork of let the states do what they want. I actually have provocatively said at this point in time, we can't let the states do what they want. They're returning doses. Alabama and Mississippi are returning doses to you. You take those doses and you turn around and you tell teachers that they have to get vaccinated. You tell health care workers they have to get vaccinated. Anyone who's getting federal funding, you need to be vaccinated. I know that's not politically tenable. I'm not stupid, but that's where we're at. And th to me, that's, you know, that's the only way we're going to get out of this at, at a global level. I, I got to tell you, it makes a heck of a lot of sense to me, Kavita. You know, we're at a precarious point. If half of Americans have been vaccinated and the demand is falling off, then essentially what we're doing is creating enough progress to create hope and enough vulnerability right. Right. to invite disaster. That's right. And there is now a kind of a political divide in the United States um, where particularly red state governors are pushing back on any pressure from the federal government to try to augment the fading demand. And, and we're going to face a choice, you know, and, and, you know, in 1918, the, the, the way this was dealt with was not, Hey, everybody do what you want. Mm -hmm. You know, right. in, in, right. in, in state after state, it was like, wear a mask or, 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 go else. Fail, right. or get fined, you know, right. it was, and, and, and I think we, we're going to, this administration 
may you know stare that squarely in the eye mm -hmm. um I, again it's yeah. it's not directly relevant to this but i just saw that the governor of mississippi told the federal government today that they don't want unemployment insurance they don't right. want to accept their unemployment right. insurance it's 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 like these guys are so against the federal government that there is no amount of localized suffering among their people that they will not endure, particularly if those people are seen to be mm -hmm. the ones in their states who vote for Democrats. That's right. And uh, and so there is a kind of, I don't know, uh, I don't mean to cast it in these terms, but there's a kind of a, a national security versus civil liberties tension mm -hmm. that looks like it's going to loom large in the United States. Um, this has been a, a, a useful, thought-provoking, chilling discussion. I want to thank Rana Ayub for joining us uh, uh, late at night in in Bombay. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ed and Kavita uh, for joining us as they always do and providing uh, thoughtful and provocative answers. I want to thank all of you who joined us in the audience for posing questions. Those of you who are joining us and listening to this, please follow along at the dsrnetwork.com for our next upcoming episodes. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, and uh, in the interim, uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>